producer T here. I popped up on the start of this recording to apologise. Because of a logistical problem, the tape of this session starts about 20 minutes into the panel. This means that we miss the opening contributions from Laura Basu, Angela Phillips and Wendy Liu, who was chairing the event. It also makes the panel sound very male until the Q&A, which starts from about 36 minutes in, I guess 41 minutes after this intro, something that we're very conscious of. So I'm not going to try to ventriloquise those missed contributions. For one thing, I wasn't there until about two minutes before the recording starts. However, I will give a very brief introduction to each of the three speakers, and I'll point you to where you can find their research elsewhere on the World Wide Web. Our first speaker was Laura Basu. You can check out her writing on open democracy. Laura's research is on the intersection between neoliberal economics, austerity and the media. Her latest book, Media Amnesia, came out in April. It explores the extraordinary act of forgetting performed by the British media. So while people have been prepared to talk about regulation of the banks and the general problems of hyper-financialised capital running wild in the moments immediately after the crash in 2008, there was a sense that not only were these causes forgotten in the years after, in a way the whole fact of the crisis of this enormous calamity of capitalism became a forgotten subject. Laura's analysis precisely documents how the media's amnesia about the financial crisis was integral to creating a discourse where austerity became the only legitimate game in town. From deliberate proprietorial interventions to the emergent demands of the news cycle, Laura's research unpicks what it is about the way our media operates which causes it to present such a warped context, or indeed to ignore context almost entirely in an obsession with the perpetual present. Professor Angela Phillips is one of the founders of the Media Reform Coalition. She was a journalist for over 40 years and now a high-profile academic who gave evidence to the Leveson Inquiry. Her latest book is called Misunderstanding News Audiences, Seven Myths of the Social Media Era. She's an expert on the operation of social media and how it interacts with legacy media, both in terms of which people still see their news and the challenges that Google, Facebook et al. place on their business models. Professor Phillips recently contributed, alongside colleagues at Goldsmiths, proposals to the government's Cairncross Review, which would see internet giants taxed in order to pay for local journalism that provides a public service to democracy. As well as defending the local press from the disruption of their advertising-based business model, she is also a strong advocate of more robust regulation on a Leveson model to improve ethical standards. Recently, Alison has advocated for creation of public alternatives to services such as search and social media that are currently provided for us by big tech companies. You can follow her at Angela E-L-L on Twitter. Finally, Wendy Liu, our chair, is the economics editor of The New Socialist. She's a former software engineer who, after coding inside Google and later at her own startup, became disillusioned with the meaninglessness of work inside Silicon Valley. She was radicalised by left-wing literature and now works to organise the tech proletariat at the Tech Workers Coalition. 
as well as at the Greater NS. You can also find Wendy's writings at Notes from Below, Novara and Tribune launched this year at The World Transformed. She created our website and while researching this biography, I've also found out that her personal website, dellsystem.me, is also really amazing and it basically contains pretty much a whole LSE master's course on inequality. Wendy is on Twitter at dellsystem. Apologies again for the missing content. If anyone was bootlegging this session on that off chance, or indeed any others that we've missed, please get in touch at tinhins88, T-I-N-H-I-N-Z 88 on Twitter, uh, or you can message us on SoundCloud if you'd be willing to share your audio. The voice that you'll hear speaking as the session starts is Leo Watkins. basic background to this issue is that for the last 40 to 50 years there has been increasing concentration of news ownership uh, and the increasing commercialization of journalism um, with extremely damaging results for the kind of journalism that's being produced in this country. There has also been a very kind of vociferous class struggle uh, to consolidate power in the hands of owners and editors and to disempower ordinary journalists uh, while degrading their conditions, uh, leaving them increasingly open to bullying from their superiors and coercion into the use of illegal practices, as we saw in the phone hacking scandal. Now, um, the result of this has been that the production of good journalism has declined simply for commercial reasons um, relating to the need to shore up profits. This occurred before the internet came along and destroyed the business model of journalism. You know, so if you look at the local press, for example, you'll find that huge numbers of people were being laid off in the 1990s and early 2000s before the likes of Google came along and took away classified advertising revenue from the local press and did a lot of economic damage that way. But the internet has massively compounded this problem uh, and we now have a situation where it's extremely difficult to find examples of journalism which is for a broad public rather than say a business elite which is profitable and sustainable um, and which is not being heavily subsidized by billionaires like Jeff Bezos, for example, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, now, the second, the, the other element of this is that, you know, journal, as well as journalists being laid off, because there are terrible conditions, the result is that the journalism being produced is very bad. Uh, this is, so in a very basic sense, the less time you have uh, to produce journalism, uh, the more you're going to rely on official sources, on pre-packaged press releases that come from organizations with the power and money to do those kinds of things. And as a result, we have a news agenda which is increasingly set by powerful institutions uh, from a, in a sort of feed-in way as well as in terms of control over the production process. Um, and the result also of the collapse of journalistic production in many areas, and especially in local areas, is simply that vast areas of our social life uh, are not being covered. Uh, and the result is that, for example, in local democracy, we have a very, very severe paucity of coverage of what is actually being done in our name by our elected representatives, and that is a fundamental problem. I think it's also a reason, incidentally, why austerity was so heavily pushed onto local councils by George Osborne, because he knew that by doing that, the result would be to have cuts carried out by people who are not being monitored by the press. And as a result, much of the damage that's been done to our social fabric has not been reported. The other element being, of course, that the press itself is not particularly interested in opposing austerity. Now, the proposal that I'm outlining is essentially one in which we have a large amount of public money, which the public individually, as electors, decides who gets, right? So the basic idea is that each person has a voucher worth a defined amount of this public fund, uh, which could conceivably be split into a local and a national um, kind of ticket. Uh, and, um, 
and then apportioned among the outlets that you as a member of the public think do good journalism. Um, and then you could have that you know, done on a regular basis every year, every couple of years. As you, uh, that, that's essentially something we can work out. In order to compete for that kind of fund, you'd have to be um, an outlet that met certain basic criteria. You'd have to be uh, a journalistic cooperative. You'd have to make your output freely available. You'd have to refuse to carry advertising uh, and take uh, you know, donations from wealthy people and so on and so forth. Um, and you'd also have to accept basic regulation for standards, right? I, you'd have to do something that most of the press in this country categorically refuses to do, which is accept strong independent regulation to ensure that they do not abuse the rights of the people they talk about, uh, to ensure that they do not uh, publish systematic inaccuracies, uh, and to ensure that they don't th do things like intrude into, into personal grief and essentially you know, look to monetize it as, as an organization like the Daily Mail does. Um, it would also obviously need to regulate those uh, those cooperatives for financial probity in order to ensure that this wasn't just sort of a, a, a mechanism for um, dispersing money uh, corruptly. Uh, so you need to have a regulator that oversaw this system, which would basically be one that would meet the criteria set out in the Leveson report. Um, it would have a duty to try and maximize people's engagement with this system, to encourage people to take up use of this system, because of course there's going to be a certain element of people are going to say, well, why do I really need to do this? There's no journalist, I, you know, no journalism I like, and so on and so forth. Um, and we need to try and overcome those issues, obviously, uh, but I think they can be overcome. Um, so to quickly move on to the benefits of this kind of proposal, well, the most basic and, uh, and substantial benefit is that there will be a huge increase, ideally, in funding for journalism. Now, as, as to how we fund this proposal, well, one way is to use the money raised in attacks on the tech, tech giants, but frankly, you know, we shouldn't view how much we can raise through that means as the sort of ceiling on how much money we actually spend on this. My argument would be that this is a absolutely central funding priority. We should think of this as investment in the infrastructure of democracy, the most fundamental stuff that we need to ensure that we make good democratic decisions, which obviously themselves have massive economic consequences, uh, uh, and also to th do things like expose corruption, um, to prevent waste, to uh, make all kinds of public officials feel that there is scrutiny on their backs that means that they will do their jobs properly, right? Um, because many public officials do not do that because they lack that scrutiny, particularly at the local level. I think we saw a lot of these failures encapsulated in the Grenfell fire. Uh, that was a case of a, a story which could have been uncovered by uh, good journalism, good local journalism, uh, and where the council could have been held to account earlier, uh, before the fire even happened, for the failings um, that occurred in that case. I think that this is also a, another way to think about this is it's a massive extension of democratic rights. We're talking essentially about saying, well, you should not only have the power to elect the central state uh, and to elect who runs your local council, you should have the power to elect the media in a direct way. And because each person has the same amount of money, you in effect abolish the current class inequalities that exist in the funding of media because how, how much money you have dictates how attractive you are to advertisers and how much money you can spend on a newspaper or a news subscription online. And that means that we have an, a, a media which is overwhelmingly geared towards the interests of the wealthy, not simply because the wealthy own the media, but because the wealthy the wealthiest people in society are also the most attractive audience for media to meet, right? So even if you get rid of the problem of wealthy media owners, you're still going to have class inequality as long as you have a system of private funding of media. The only way to get around this is something, uh, is something like what I'm proposing. The result of doing this is not only to get rid of that class bias, it's also to improve the private production, uh, sorry, to get rid of the private production uh, biases that creep in through a bias towards kind of commodifiable forms of news, uh, 
to you know ways of producing which are easy, easy to kind of exclude people from, which is a condition of charging for access to something, right? You you can't charge for air because it's, you can breathe it freely. In the same way, uh, you have to put walls around journalism in order to be able to charge for it effectively. And that is, a, I think, a harmful thing. We need a system which uh, creates journalism in a way that makes it free to proliferate online, uh, to reach people wherever they are, through whatever form happens to be the one that appeals to them most. And a system like this imposes no kind of requirement on how you go about forming your journalism into something people consume. You can do a podcast, you can do videos on YouTube, you can do articles, whatever it may be. Um, it also requires journalists to forge a very direct connection to the public, right? You have to effectively go out and campaign and explain to people why you deserve to be given this money, right? Now, someone might say, well, that means you're making journalists into politicians. Well, I'd say you are making journalists into people who have to have a direct connection to the public, who have to campaign for what they believe in uh, and win support on that basis. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to expect journalists to do. Um, I think it will also give people a vast amount of choice about what kind of media to support and what kind of media to consume, because if all this stuff is freely available, we're talking about a huge expansion in the range of news sources available to people. And I think in that sense, it, it also ties into our sort of broader you know, political agenda as a movement, because it realizes you know, uh, uh, co cooperatives as a model of ownership in the directly in the media sector. Uh, and it will also have a massive effect on regenerating local democracy, because it will enable people to understand what's going on at the local level. Now, there are a number of objections which I'm going to kind of cover very quickly uh, to this proposal that one might have. Now, the most basic one, which is likely to come up from the media, uh, the commercial media, if we try and actually implement this, is going to be, well, it's going to make it harder for existing commercial media, or as the Denny Mail might call it, this is going to be a Stalinist takeover of the media by, you know, the Corbyn, the Corbyn sort of, you know, nutcases or whatever. Now, <clears throat> the, most basic, the most basic kind of rejoinder here is that it doesn't stop anyone from trying to make money from news. People can still try and do that if they want. There's no censorship going on here whatsoever. Will it be harder to make money from news, given publicly available, uh, much better news, basically? Yes, it will. It probably will be harder. And as a result, Rupert Murdoch will be able to make less money from news in this country. I don't really care about that. I think, if anything, it's a benefit, right? For journalists, however, the story is very different. For journalists, they are better off in this system. We're talking about having much more money available for them to do good journalism. We're talking about them having the control over their organization rather than serving a corporate master. And so if there are any journalists in the room here who are thinking of writing a hit piece about this panel, being like, well, you know, I went to this panel called Occupy Fleet Street and these people wanted to take over the media, consider for yourself what this proposal would mean for you. This proposal would mean much better working conditions for you. It would mean you being able to do the journalism that you came into the profession to do, not the journalism that you are probably being required to do at the moment by your editor, who is, of course, in turn answerable to your tax-exiled tax owner. Now, <clears throat> I'm not finished, I'm not finished. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, just very quickly to, to end with, I think... You know, the other, the other objection is the public will use this right badly. They'll choose the wrong things. Well, obviously, that's a basic objection to democracy itself. Um, there's the, the, we also have to compare that with the status quo. The public does already decide at the moment. I think that they will decide better through this mechanism than they do through the current system, not least because, as I said, it will eliminate the problem of class bias. And, of course, some people will still choose to support things that you or I may not like, but that's fair enough. Overall, on the balance of things, this will be better as a way of funding media. 
Uh, now, you may also say, well, that you're just proposing this because it will help Labour, you know, whatever, to which my answer would be, I do think it will help Labour to have a system where we have a more informed public, where we have more extensive coverage of, of social institutions and national issues and so on. And I think that the Tories, in effect, govern through relying on people's ignorance or gullibility about certain issues. And climate change is the most obvious example of that, where the, the right is quite simply on the side of denying the truth. And therefore, any proposal which, be, which improves the quality of journalism and improves popular education on these subjects is going to, of course, benefit us, right? But that's nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever here. Um, now, finally, I think, you know, people say, well, the public won't support this. It doesn't really matter to them. You know, what, how can we convince people of this? Well, I, I would say, look, that's not a reason for this not to be done. It's a reason why it's going to be difficult to do, uh, of course, uh, to win people over. And we have to think concretely about how we go about doing that. Um, but I think that can be done if we agree fundamentally that this is a necessary proposal that will improve things. Now, obviously, the final objection is, well, this won't solve everything, right? There are lots of other things you need to solve, digital intermediaries, the BBC, and so on, and other panellists are going to do that. But just because it doesn't solve everything, it does solve a very central problem with our democracy right now, okay? One which we absolutely have to tackle if we're going to have any hope of regenerating this country. Um, so for those reasons, I think it's something that we have to put at the centre of any kind of media reform programme. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I'm going to talk uh, briefly, um, hopefully. Let me just start my timer so I don't go over. I can talk for a long time on the BBC, but I won't do that. I'm going to focus on the BBC, which is mainly um, my area of expertise. I wrote a book on it, and now I'm working on media reform proposals, not just on the BBC, but others have spoken on other areas. So that's what I'm going to focus on here. I think... Who are you? Uh, sorry, I'm Tom Mills. Um, so uh, we... It's good to see media as being, um, you know, get, getting um, attention, and I think it is important to note that, um, you know, well, now the discussions around media reform are moving into areas beyond that. I mean, uh, digital and data and communications are now at the very sort of cutting edge of uh, capital accumulation. This isn't a, a marginal concern, but also, as Leo has said, the capacity for us to have a democratic and public infrastructure that allows us to communicate with each other outside of the market and the state, I think should be absolutely central to any kind of modern uh, socialist project. Now, in terms of where the BBC fits into this whole picture, I think really, first of all, why talk about the BBC? Well, where we are right now, the BBC is by far the most important source of news in the UK. It's also very influential in um, global media markets. And I think we can. there are discrete problems with the BBC, and hopefully you're at some but I don't have a starry-eyed sort of picture of what the BBC is, but I do think there are things which we need to preserve about the BBC, and we need to update, and we need to adapt to a digital environment. Just briefly on a bit of history of the BBC, um, as, as Angela sort of alluded to the 1920s and the situation there where we, we made a kind of public claim, I mean, not a democratic claim, it should be said, but a public claim on the broadcasting infrastructure and development of that new technology. James Harding, who was until recently head of um, BBC News, actually mentioned this in um, a piece he wrote for The Guardian, that if we, if we were inventing something now, we would create the British Digital Corporation, which is something that... Dan will be speaking on. How did the BBC come about? I mean, I think this is instructive for how we should think about what the solutions might be now. The BBC actually came about because 
a corporate consortium, which was more or less the Googles and Facebooks of its day, including Marconi and Westinghouse and other corporations, had patents on radio technology. And what they wanted was to get those radios out to market. In order to sell that and to a mass market, you had to have something being broadcasted. So they wanted to, to basically monetize the, the technology that they patented. Now, at this point, broadcasting itself was not recognized as being something that could make you money. That happened later in the early 1930s, where the, the big corporations in the United States started to consolidate the broadcasting system there. And then it became clear that this was a viable business model based on advertising. At this point, the British elites didn't recognize that. What happened was that the state stepped in to try and regulate it on behalf of a corporate consortium. And they saw their interests as being met by the state stepping in and essentially producing content. So they were happy. And they stepped out of the picture and this created the BBC. And through a process of discussion and negotiation between sort of the British elites, they came up with this idea of public service broadcasting, which, which gave birth to the BBC. What do we get as a result of that? We got an organization which, on paper, was committed to independence from the market and the state. And this is, I think, a good principle which we should be starting with. It was committedly anti-democratic, though, in, in its original um, formulation. It was always close to the state and the British establishment. And, and John Reef, who was the first director general and the sort of founding father of the BBC, was very proud of that. Um, it was overtly partisan when it came to issues of class and power, um, something that I go into in some detail in the book. So we have uh, an organization here which Actually, um, for the reasons that Leo alluded to, because it has a certain amount of professionalism and because it's obliged to report impartially, I mean, however that may have played out recent, more recently, has given the right certain disadvantages insofar as they will not report things that they know to be overtly false. Now, conservatism as a movement, I think, is... Uh, is an intellectually dishonest movement. It has to rely on misinformation in order to build a public sort of um, popular support. And, and that is why the power of the press and these kinds of outfits have served a very useful function, I think, for the establishment over the course of the 20th century. And the, the existence of the BBC has made a difference. Now, what happened with the BBC uh, during the 1980s, and particularly in the 1990s, is it became much more integrated into the market. It became much more commercialized. It started to contract out its programming, introduced something that was called, then was called new public management, which was essentially neoliberal forms of uh, managerial reform of the state. All of that stuff worked its way through the BBC. It became um, overtly and quite consciously, uh, at the same time, more business friendly, more neoliberal in its orientation. And this laid the groundwork for what happened in 2008, uh, 10 years ago, when the financial crisis hit. There was an infrastructure there at the BBC, a set of incentives and, uh, and jobs, which, which certain values and ideas about the world were embodied. And uh, Laura has done some work um, bringing together academic work on how the BBC reported on austerity. Uh, and essentially, the, the, the BBC was reporting the crisis and the response to the crisis in a way which allowed the Conservatives to take advantage of that. What do we have as a result of this? We have a, we have a, a state broadcaster, if you like, or a public service broadcaster, if you want to call it that, which has always been very close to the state, which is, and now has been increasingly neoliberal. And the response of the BBC to the rise of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters in the party, I think it's reflected some of that. That the, the, the values of the BBC are completely at odds 
with the kind of politics which most people in this room um, are going to represent. And I don't think I need to tell you that about the BBC. You've probably experienced it for yourself um, in the way that it's, it reports. Now, I think it's a mistake for us to say that the BBC is simply an enemy of the movement or people who want to improve society. I think it is a, it's, um, it's a terrain which is weighed against us but it's one that should belong to us. So what we should be saying is, actually, we want the BBC to do what it says on the tin. We want it to be impartial. We want it to be independent of the government. And I think some of the problems with the BBC, I mean, there are extremely complex problems with the media, and I think it's great to be on a panel where we're thinking prescriptively about what we're going to do about this, because that is where we are. Have no doubt that we could be on the brink of government, and we are going to have to make big decisions which are going to lay the groundwork for... The, the next, um, moving into a next significant historical period when it comes to the political economy of the media. Now, there are simple stuff we can do. I, I worked on a set of proposals which were published by the Media Reform Coalition on the BBC specifically, and I think Jeremy Corbyn's announcements have been very positive on this. I think elements of the BBC that tie it to the state, which includes the capacity for governments to uh, appoint members to the BBC board, they include the... Um, periodic renewal of the uh, Royal Charter that includes the ability to set the licence fee. And one of the arguments that people who defend the BBC's independence make is that the money comes from us and that therefore the BBC is independent, um, which uh, doesn't really make a lot of sense because all, all money comes from us in taxes. It doesn't make it mean it's not part of the state, obviously. The, the level of the licence fee is set by the government. What we need to do is remove all of these areas of governmental control. And this was proposed by Jeremy Corbyn, and I think it's extremely welcome. This is exactly what we should be doing. We should not be saying we will take the BBC under government control, get rid of all government um, influence on the BBC, but we need to do a little bit more than that. We need to think about how the BBC would fit into a modern, digital, non-market-based political economy. And what we had proposed in the draft proposals that the Media Reform Coalition published was several things. First of all, you would have democratic appointment system at the BBC. So whereas the state, and I mean, realistically, it, was, it would be some, whoever's in number 10 and their close advisors, would traditionally appoint people to the BBC. We would have a system of elections whereby non-executive directors are appointed by licensee payers, and, and we have regional boards as well as a central board to have a decentralization of the BBC in combination with the workers at the BBC electing their representatives to the board. So we, we take, um, Laura mentioned about bottom-up and, and, and top-down approaches, and Leo mentioned how we want to give power to journalists. We would be taking away the top-down, bureaucratic, state-led structure of the BBC, making it authentically independent, making an demo internal democratic culture, but more than that, making the BBC's uh, organisational culture much more in touch with the culture of this country, much more closely aligned to the interests that which we as the public should be able to, to, def to define. So you can read those proposals for yourself. I think... Um, that the, we need an extensive democratization and decentralization. And in combination with that, I think there are also elements of the BBC's... Um, uh, I, can you all hear me if I just talk loud? Um, should I try this one? Hello? Okay, good. Um, I just want to finish very quickly because I'm running out of time on the question of commissioning. A lot of things that you see on the BBC have not been made by the BBC. They've been made by companies that the BBC then um, buys programmes for from the market sector. This was part of the neoliberal reform that was introduced in the 1980s, and it's increasingly consolidated by media multinationals. I think we need to keep that, we need to take that money, and we need to create regional and democratic systems of commissioning that will allow that money to develop a non-market-based 
decentralized um, media system. And I think we need to be thinking about alternative models of ownership in the digital, um, in the, in the uh, journalistic and, uh, sector and in digital media more broadly. And I think regional media co-ops can be integrated into the BBC and as part of a broader um, democratized political economy of the type that, that Leo has, uh, has already laid out. So I'll, I'll leave the sort of outline there and hopefully we can talk more in questions. I'll pass over to them. The, um, the longer you guys clap, the, the more of a reprieve I had from starting to talk, so uh, I was keeping clapping there for a while. Uh, we've got ten minutes left, uh, the coffee's wearing off, and I've got to bring it to a rousing conclusion. So, um, But I would say I've not, I do a podcast with Tom, and normally if I flag or I start to say stupid things, he jumps in. So um, there's no if, if he interrupts me, that's perfectly natural and normal. Don't, don't be alarmed. Um, so what we've heard, I think, so far is some, some very interesting thoughts on... Um, bringing public service principles into the digital age. Um, as Tom has just outlined, um, there is a way of thinking about the BBC in the digital age very differently, um, where we move beyond public service principles into a principle of a proactive public. Um, and once we start to think about the BBC as, as the kind of top predator in our media system, which it is, most people still rely on the BBC for their news. If we understand it as a, a pillar institution in the way that the public forms its opinion, the public, in the way that public opinion is reproduced, you then start to have a purchase on the idea of a much broader conversation about democratic communications. What happens if we take a democratised platform BBC and start to think about how that um, reaches into m much broader ideas about planning for social need and so on? Um, so, so the... the um, so uh, again, th there's, been, there's been conversation already about developing a genuinely plural, pr pluralist pu public sphere. Leo was talking about um, a voucher system which would give an individuated power um, to shape public speech to citizens in, in virtue of their being citizens. And I think it's important to highlight now that when we talk about this, we are talking about what should be a constitutional principle. It should be a, a, like a foundational principle of democracy that all of us have some purchase on the creation of public speech. And the fact that we don't is, is one, of the, one of the key ways in which representative democracy fails in its self-description. What we have is not representative democracy precisely because most of us have no purchase on the production and the reproduction of public speech. And there, are, there is a, 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 an incredibly important conversation to have both about the, the development of journalistic content, which, which the voucher system goes a very long way to addressing, um, and about the dissemination of, of, that, uh, of that content. Um, and these are two sides of the same coin. And again, the BBC is going to play a central role, potentially, in the creation of a, of a public sphere which lives up to, um, the, uh, again, the sort of conceited self-descriptions that we have about liberal public sphere, where you have a genuine... Um, uh, a zone of contention between different points of view. And um, when I say it's a constitutional principle, I mean, it, as, a, as a sidebar, this was a constitutional principle in, in the classical democracies. So in Athens, the definitive value of Athens, when, they talk, when, when the Spartans or Persians talked about Athens, they said what's weird about Athens 
what's characteristic and distinctive about Athens is that everybody has a right to speak in the assembly. That's what they, that's what they meant when Herodotus said, how did, they be, how did they go from being an obscure little town to beating the Persian Empire? It's because they had a quality in the assembly. Everybody could speak. And the idea there is that, the, that in, in that zone of freedom, the best ideas stand some chance of being heard. At the moment, we have a system of prior restraint where if you don't have vast amounts of money, you cannot access sizable audiences. Now, and I, and I would say again, uh, it's important to register how strange this political moment is in that we have a room full of people talking about the possibility of a socialist government instituting wide-ranging reforms of the communicative sphere. And again, I stress that this is, if you want, if you want a, a fully democratic state, you cannot avoid the issue of media and communications. This is kind of core to it. Um, and, and again, this is, as, as Tom alluded to earlier in, in the conversation about the way in which the British state managed the advent of broadcast, to think of the media and the state as being in some way separable is, is a mystification. Media systems are created by law and they are created by patterns of state action and inaction. There is no, there is no independent liberal public sphere without a, a regulatory state that creates a legislative environment um, in which speech is regulated. And the outcomes of the system that we have, which massively favour oligarchic interests, are, they are not bugs, they are they're designed in. Right, they're features, not bugs. Um, I'm using a bit of tech jargon there, which I think I've got away with. Um, so, at the moment, the, the media system acts as an assistant to a, to a particular conception of the political. Politics is a professional matter, it's governed by experts, and they define the limits of the expressible. And as I say, by some extraordinary set of circumstances, Corbyn has interrupted um, that, that normal reproduction of politics as a, as a, as a distant sphere, um, which, is, which purports to be responsive to public opinion, but it's responsive to a public opinion that it discovers and it defines. Um, it also, the, the media system also underpins a very particular conception of the economic, both in, in terms of what it talks about and what it, what it avoids talking about. There is a, there is a vast um, a, um, a mass of mystification which serves um, the conservative interest and which, which concentrates itself and becomes almost impenetrable around issues like land um, and property and housing, and like interest and money. Um, the, the way in which the, the current media system is incapable of looking the monetary and financial system in the eye and describing what it sees um, contributes a massive amount to the kind of politics in which a, you know, a, a reactionary um, and, and essentially hallucinatory agenda uh, in Toryism is able to survive. I genuinely don't think that Toryism could survive in, uh, in, in a media system that was characterised by equality in public speech, by, by a system in which everyone had some purchase on public speech. Um, now, there's much more to be said um, about um, the, the ways, like in concrete institutional terms, how the BBC can become um, a, a, an assistant in that process of developing equality in speech, uh, and about the kinds of institutional supplements we need. Uh, I think it's important that we have a, a pluralist idea of public communications. We don't have a monolithic BBC, but as, as Leah was uh, alluded to, we have a, a network of independent um, news producers 
but which, but crucially, these independent news producers are able to reach um, significant audiences and able to um, to help convene a conversation between equals um, that that can proceed much much broader public participation um, in the conduct of public business. Um, so, as I say, once we start to think about a digital, a properly di digital BBC that has democratic elements in its constitution and that through using new technology allows conversation between civic equals to take place. Um, Angela was talking about the ways in which the commercial platforms thrive on a sensation, they, they thrive on confrontation. Um, it's useful to think about what a public platform that doesn't need to make money from advertising, what characteristics that would be able to have in terms of promoting a um, a conversation between equals on the best available information, right? There's no business model for that, right? There's a business model for spreading bewilderment, mystification, and fermenting anger. Um, there is no business model for a, a communication system in where we can calmly and gently dismantle these monstrous illusions that roam around unhindered at the moment. Um, and, that, and I think that's kind of should be close to to our agenda. Um, is to is to, in the proper sense, disillusion the public sphere, strip it of its illusions. There are too many roaming around. Um, so, so the idea then that once you have um, that conversation between equals, that that provides a prelude to democratic pl planning throughout the economy and throughout society. Um, once you once you've once you've had that conversation about what we want, you can then have a conversation about how we get it. Um, and the idea that we, Tom and I develop in the Media Democracy Pamphlet is that we would, we would uh, as a new incoming Labour government, create a British Digital Corporation. And that, the, the, the remit of that corporation would be to promote democracy in the wider society uh, and to develop a, a, essentially a public option in technology. So it would look around the terrain and say, the BBC needs extra platform capabilities. So we're going to develop that for them. And we're going to develop for that for them in, in partnership with, with publics. Um, these news corps need governance platforms so that they remain accountable to their audiences. We're going to develop those technical capabilities. More broadly, you could say, well, why don't we strip out rent-seeking in the tech sector? So look at the operating system, the, the Android um, uh, system, which ties you in to a, a kind of surround surveillance environment. Why don't we have a publicly owned uh, operating system or publicly developed operating system on open source or free software principles? that would be, again, a stable platform in which a whole range of public and private provision could take place. And I think in that, in that model, a, a Corbyn government becomes a, a magnet for creativity. So the mobilization that we need to get into to office is then followed by a massive explosion of creativity where we say, actually, we do not have to structure our economy around supporting monopolies. We can structure our economy around developing free resources that meet real human needs. Okay, so, um, done that. Um, oh, this is the last bit where I'm gonna really go for it. So, um, so, so what we have, I think, in prospect is a winnable fight on media reform. This is a, this is a, a moment that has come. I've been talking about media reform for around 10 years now. I've never seen an audience this big for a media event this early in the day. Um, and we are starting, I think, to, to coalesce around a set of practical proposals 
for changing um, the, the, the media system so that we have a public sphere that, that, that lives up to its billing. And that's, a, in some sense, is a minimal demand. But once we, once we understand the nature of that, um, then we start to see an even, even more glittering prize in prospect. Machiavelli said, always resist small reforms because each reform leads to the next. Right? But if we can, if we can secure um, support for media reform, we can deliver it. What we see in prospect is a much broader system of communications that develops a clear understanding of what we want and develops the resources to deliver it. And we can plan together for real social need. And we be, so media, media and communications reform is absolutely at the heart of the creation of a socialist political economy. Thank you very much. All right, so thank you to all the panelists so far. Uh, so before we take questions from the floor, I'm just going to ask everyone a few questions to the panel at large. So I'm just going to ask uh, three questions together, and then everyone, I'm going to pass the mic around so you can all comment on it or try to answer as much as, as much as you like. So the first question, Leo brought up a quite compelling point about how we should be viewing journalism as a fundamental public infrastructure that's fundamental to society in the same way that you know roads, sewers, uh, electric grids are. My question then is why have we not really seen it that way so far and how do we ensure that we do treat journalism as a public service? Um, my next question is about advertising. Quite a few of the panelists mentioned that we should ban advertising. I'm totally on board, but th the real question is how, how do you get there? Like, What is the first step towards trying to ban advertising and what does it actually look like to ban it? And then the last question, um, a lot of these proposals so far have involved quite substantial policy changes. Still, you know, we don't really have a Corbyn government coming anytime soon, most likely. It'll still probably be a few years. What can we, as people in the movement, do before then to try to improve the, improve the public sphere? Um, journalism is public service. Um, it exists in theory, and it exists in some forms at the BBC. Um, the simple answer is vested interests do not have an interest in that form of journalism. So I think that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's, that's the answer. Um, what do we do? Corbyn has made a set of proposals which are not yet Labour policy. So we need to fight for those policies in the Labour Party. We need to get them into the manifesto. If they're not in the manifesto, the next manifesto, then they need to be party policy. So we need to fight for that. And the second thing we need to do is support um, our own alternative media. Now, I think, in a, in a sense, we need to be a bit careful because I think the movement media is, is difficult to the, the overall national public media. But, we, of course, we need to support the alternatives that exist. How do we ban... Advertising, uh, Laura can pick up on that one. I think, uh, for me, it is if we can price advertising as a business model out, then that's the best way to do it. The thing is, with publicly funded media, is actually we, there's no need to monetize it in in that fashion. And actually, it's a very efficient production model because digital production has zero marginal costs. If you can, if you can make it 
publicly funded at the point of production and universally available, which, by the way, is one of the founding principles of public service broadcasting. It's a very efficient um, distribution model. It's very difficult for advertising-funded media to be able to compete with that, except in so far as they've already managed to achieve monopoly positions. Um, but I, I, at the moment, I don't think it's clear what we do. I'll, I'll pass on the mic. I think uh, banning advertising would probably not work very well. <laughs> um, at the moment, I and I also do, and I also think that advertising-funded media would compete because I think it would be providing something completely different, which is what it does at the moment. I mean, people buy the Daily Mail and the Sun not for the adverts, but for the way it's written, and I guess that that's something we just have to accept that they. People buy it because they want it. And I also think that one, the, the BBC is an alternative to existing services. And that's a much more useful way of thinking about it. So if you have cer a search engine, a, a digital infrastructure, that is not... The important thing is not that, it, that we should ban advertising completely, because actually search advertising is quite useful. What you should do is you should ban the way, you should change the way in which the algorithms work so they're not focusing on, on harvesting personal data. Um, if, when you're, if you're searching for, as I have been doing lately, for a really good jacket to wear on a bicycle, actually you want ads to come up which tell you which is a really good jacket to wear, rainproof jacket to wear, and there's no reason why you shouldn't even on a public publicly funded system of search, you shouldn't have a form of advertising. It's, you need to think about how you regulate the form of advertising so that it isn't, um, so that the whole system isn't based around serving ads, but the ads, are, ads arrive in a much more neutral way. So I wouldn't ban advertising. I think it's a very good way of, the, it's a way in which the, com the commercial is able to fund the public but we need to be regulating how it does it. Um, so on the, on the first point about, you know, why do we think uh, journalism as, as public infrastructure? Well, the basic reason is that, you know, for a lot of the history of journalism, journalism has been able to be produced in the form of a kind of physical commodity, which naturally lends itself to being, to being produced privately. You know, if you can commodify something, then you can you can sell it and you can crucially because you can exclude people from having what's in it that's where the concept of a scoop or an exclusive comes in right in in traditional newspapers but the internet has effectively obliterated that because as soon as you publish an exclusive story your rivals on another newspaper will have a write-up of that story in short order and what that's effectively done is collapse your incentive your tiny window of exclusivity of a day that you had previously in the era of news in, or in the kind of heyday of newspapers to um you, your incentive to produce original original news has basically been destroyed, in large part, anyway. And that's had a very damaging effect on the production of original news. A lot of what we get is essentially recycled or comment or reaction or whatever. Um, so there's a straightforward sense in which the dematerialization of journalism into the form of, uh, of instantly shareable content online has undermined its viability as a private commodity and therefore undermined the ability of the commercial sector to produce it. Very quickly on ads, I wouldn't necessarily ban all ads, but I think it's very important to talk about, firstly, taxing 
uh, ads, if you like, and also to ban specific categories of ads. So we have a ban on television for all political advertising. The only advertising you're allowed to do as a political party is through assigned party political broadcasts. That principle should be extended to the internet. There should be no paid political advertising on Facebook. That's a very basic uh, pr uh, proposal that should be in the next Labour manifesto. That doesn't mean to say there should be no political campaigning on social media. That would be ridiculous. But there should be no paid political ads whatsoever. Um, also, obviously, gambling advertising should be banned, not just during live sport, as Labour has currently proposed, but altogether. There should be no gambling advertising. It's extremely socially damaging. There's no real reason for it. Um, I can see the case for advertising other kinds of goods, but those are two categories where we should be banning them. Um, and on what we can do in the meantime, well, if you consider the voucher system I've proposed, Labour could in effect set up its own internal system of party media funding, funding that is democratically assigned by votes of the party membership. It could appeal to money from trade unions and members, put it into a fund, and then say the membership is going to vote for which organisation should get this money. There are lots of good left media organisations out there, New Socialists, which Wendy is an editor for, is one of them. Um, they need money. They need money not just from individual donations, but also from the organisations that benefit from having a flourishing party media. And Labour would benefit hugely from having that. And I think it's extremely strange that they haven't considered doing something, or they haven't done something like that already, and it should be an urgent priority for the party. Uh, yeah, okay, about advertising. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we'd have to have a lot of, I mean, there'll be a hell of a lot of detail to think through, and we'd have to start with conversations about definitions, what counts as advertising, what counts as giving useful information, whatever. Uh, there's been proposals to ban like targeted ads online. I don't know, maybe start with something like that in addition to creating public, uh, pu public social media, public digital uh, broadcast, public digital organization that does not rely on advertising. So the two could perhaps go together um, and then we would have to think about like if we would want to ban other kinds of advertising, what what kinds. We'd also, with all of this regulatory stuff in all domains, actually, I think you have to think about what levels you want to regulate on national levels or higher, you know, higher supranational level or perhaps lower levels. Um, what can individuals do in the meantime? Yeah, I think the ideas that we said, um, campaign for these kinds of proposals that we're talking about. I definitely like your idea of Labour creating a fund for alternative journalism and, yeah, support alternative uh, media. And I would maybe say stay off social media a little bit, like that's probably impossible, but at least like try not to get involved with these flaming wars because they're just a waste of time and stupid, I think. <laughs> So I'm going to be, I want to be very quick on, on those, on the, two of those points about advertising. Um, I talked earlier about the way the current media system um, shapes the idea of the economic, shapes the economic sphere. And one of the, the other ways in which it does it is by trying to shape us into being consuming subjects. Um, Justin Lewis, the uh, media academic based at the University of Wales at Cardiff, has pointed out that the most important genre on television is not comedy, it's not news, it's not drama. It's not, not reality shows, it's, it's the advert. The advert by weight is the most important broadcast genre. 
Um, and there is an enormous constant effort of commercial persuasion that's going on in the media. And the point about um, a public platform approach is that we would displace advertising as a way of forming desire, as a way of forming the subject. So instead of an atomized consumer that is offered essentially um, endless cups of salty water to quench its thirst, oh, buy this and you'll be okay. No, no, buy this, buy this, buy this. You have a, uh, um, you have a citizen who exists as a connected uh, citizen amongst citizens. And we then can develop desires and, and seek to satisfy them um, uh, in a way that is not subject to this incredibly powerful and in a proper sense magical process uh, of commercial persuasion. Um, and very quickly on what we can do now, um, I love Leo's idea about um, taking the labour institutions and prefiguring some of these ideas. One of the great objections is going to be, well, this is all quite unrealistic, it's quite impractical. And the best argument against that is to do it in the here and now, demonstrate it's perfectly possible. Ordinary people are perfectly capable of making rational decisions about what kind of media they want. Um, and, 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 and given the right context, they can do so um, uh, in a way that doesn't, is not hugely taxing on their time. It doesn't demand superhuman uh, attention. So, um, and the final thing you can do, Tom and I will travel the country for the price of a train ticket. And we will talk about media democracy um, pretty much um, for, the, for the price of a slap up tea. Because it's really important we have these conversations in constituencies now. Um, it's amazing that we're here, um, but there's a, there's a vast um, membership out there who need to be talking about these ideas. Okay, great. So now we're going to take questions from the floor. Uh, I'm going to take three questions at a time, and then we're going to go back to the panel. So... Um, in, in the back there, uh, in, in the front, and then I think there's one hand over there. Great, thanks. Is, is there a microphone going around? Um, so, um, hello? Is this working? Yeah. Um, uh, talking about um, the democratization of um, uh, media infrastructure, uh, a lot of discussion has taken place, which is quite helpful about um, how how the, uh, the digital companies take our own data and sell it to us or sell it to somebody else in order to, to get us to buy things. Um, so that that's that's sort of the commercial side of it. I mean, there are other ways which um, are very important uh, for us to discuss. Um, one of the revelations of Edward Snowden was that um, uh, the NSA and its engineering companies actually take all these apps um, uh, and all this digital infrastructure, anything from Microsoft to the spreadsheet to Facebook, and they, they put in digital holes which the, the digital companies themselves are not allowed to know about, hundreds of them. What are we going to do about this monster, which is more about um, not, not so much selling stuff to us, it's about stopping our capacity to change our own environment and to control our own lives. That is the elephant in the room. And we need, we need to have something about that. Um, secondly, why are all these uh, big newspaper companies abolishing the investigating journalism units? Uh, 
shouldn't that should uh, the Guardian has abolished uh, its, its investigative unit? We're 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 being sold fake news all the time. Yeah. Isn't there something the public sector can do about making sure that these uh, institutions cannot uh, abolish investigative journalism? Thank Great, you. thank you. So a question about the NSA and then about investigative journalism. Hi, I work in media and communications for charities and campaigns. Um, I've been passionate about this subject since I read Chomsky and Herman's book, Manufacturing Consent, 20 years ago. Um, I'm interested in strategies for opening up the conversation about this with um, um, and some uh, strategies and resources for talking about it with ordinary people. Um, I've just had, I, I went out campaigning in Bermondsey at the, in, during the election last year and had so many people say to me, on the doorstep, I voted Labour all my life and I love our MP, but I'm not voting for him because of Corbyn. And I asked why. I probably wasn't supposed to. And no one had an answer. And I really do feel that the media has something to play, a part to play. I mentioned this at a brunch meeting and my councillor, who I'd just been slogging out... Um, trying to get elected and I did successfully get help get him elected and he attacked me in a branch meeting saying you can't blame the media, this is lazy to blame the media and um, there was I had no support in that meeting. Um, you know, I think the BBC is so loved by people it's really hard to criticise it so if there were resources that I could point, we could point people to um, and also just wanted to reference this thing about um, um, LBC and how I feel that um, um, people are um, don't realise that it's called talkback radio. It's giving the illusion of objectivity, but it's completely not. And there's no kind of left-wing alternative. Great. So a question about resources, and then there's a question over there, I believe. Hello, um, I'm Chris Brozier from New Internationalist and I broadly welcome the whole area of media reform that's been talked about today. But I must say I particularly welcome Leo's idea for voucher journalism because broadly something from my experience has to change. For 30 years I've worked for an organisation that it was set up to campaign for you know, new stories about global justice and has done so very successfully in terms of, of you know, representing that agenda when no one else is covering it. Um, for the first 15 years of my involvement with the magazine, we were, uh, we were sub supported by subscriptions, had very wide subscription base, and, and that made us independent of advertising. We didn't, didn't depend on advertising at all. Um, we had money from our subscribers up front, and that allowed us to do what we wanted. It was a very successful model. Apart from anything else, you could do advertising in an efficient way because you knew exactly what you were getting back from it. It wasn't below the line, it, you know, you got back money back easily. Since 2000, broadly, the impact of the internet has completely destroyed that in ways that we all know. Um, and independent media cooperatives like mine are the ones who found it most difficult because we don't have, we don't have a big sugar daddy backing us or anything like that. Um, so something has to change and um, I, Despite trying all kinds of different different alternatives for for making making things work, I haven't really been able to see a way forward. Last year we did something quite radical as and 
and uh, we had a, a community share offer. So we effectively democratized the ownership of our cooperative. We still function as a, an equal pay cooperative, actually producing the magazine and the other things that we do, the websites and stuff that we do. But we opened it up through, um, through uh, to ownership, for just voluntarily, you know, people could basically chip in for whatever they wanted. But that, that's only a solution for the, for, the, for the short term. It hasn't really established how we can, we can keep things going because people are not subscribing to magazines in the way they used to. And we have, although we have, we have to put a lot of money and effort into, into maintaining our website freely available, there is no means of monetizing that that we can mm -hmm. see. And so the idea of a voucher system to support real journalism and to support um, you know, investigative journalism that will produce decent stories is obviously of very great interest to me. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, so we have a question about the NSA and investigative journalism and about resources for reaching people. Um, shall, I, shall I go first? Um, the, um, I'll qu quickly talk about the, um, the, the issue with the intelligence uh, networks. Part of the part of the, the the fantasy that we have about the media system is that it some way is some ways a fourth estate that's distinct from the state. And as I said earlier in the speech, it's impossible to disentangle um, the state and the media system. They are um, they interpenetrate in all kinds of ways. Um, and so the idea that a socialist model of media production is a state takeover of the media system is again it's another mystification. Um, the the NSA and GCHQ already wholly own Facebook, Google, and all their data. The idea that, that when they turn up at Google, there's anything other than token resistance to their demands is, is fantastical, right? They have their um, data proboscis stuck, jammed into the, um, the veins and the arteries of, of Google and Facebook, and anyone else who has um, publicly significant amounts of data passing through their servers. Um, when we start to think about a public option in tech, we want to think about a, a public option that does not aggregate data unnecessarily. Why do you centrally aggregate data? You do it so that you can develop more and more sophisticated advertising profiles. The great news for the secret state is that it's also a way of identifying potential troublemakers. Um, and as we've seen, it means you can turn down the volume of forms of information that you find um, inconvenient, right? So, um, the system that we have at the moment, which pretends to be um, a, pr a private sector, um, is a brilliant way of the state uh, interpolating itself into our public lives in a deniable or a way that we simply tend to forget about. Um, there is no reason that a public option in tech could would not encrypt um, communications between people. Um, and the, the, the data that was generated by conversations between people could be stored on their computers, would not need to be centrally aggregated necessarily. Um, and you could have a transparent method by which um, data that was seen to have been of potential criminal um, significance could be could be unencrypted, right? So you, a judge would say, "Yeah, we may, maybe think this conversation should be opened up." At the moment, they open up all conversations all the time, right? Uh, and they do so on a completely opaque basis. So again, if we have a public conversation about about public tech, we can start to think about. What do we want the NSA and GCHQ to know? Because at the moment, they want to know everything. Like, if you want to find a genuinely theological projects on Earth, like, who wants to know everything? Uh, it's GCHQ and, and the NSA. They want to be gods, 
Um, and I, part of our job is to stop them. Um, so, I think there's a way of kind of tying all these all, all these points together. On the point about the security state, and I think the most basic thing to observe is, of course, that the Snowden story was carried by the Guardian, and in that instance, the Guardian did exactly what journalism should be all about. Um, unfortunately, the Guardian doesn't seem to be doing as many big kinds of investigations in the way that it did in you know the early 2010s. And I think that you know phone hacking, WikiLeaks. And also Snowden, and you know there are still some, but 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 not on the same scale. And that's probably related to the financial difficulties that the Guardian has been in in the last few years. And the point you made about uh, investigative journalism units being broken up is quite correct. You know, the Guardian recently laid off a lot of journalists. Uh, BuzzFeed, you know, which was supposed to be you know one of the major new digital entrants, also laid off a bunch of its UK journalists because it made less advertising money than it anticipated last year. Um, and the fundamental reason why is that you know it's extremely expensive to do uh, to do journalism, which takes on the powerful because you have to research yourself, uh, research the subject extremely carefully. You have to be very skilled. It takes a lot of time. You have to be prepared for a costly legal battle because you're going to be much more subject to financial intimidation. One reason why the kind of crappy journalism that the Daily Mail does is so profitable is that it picks on people who don't have the financial capacity to defend themselves. You know, um, defend themselves. Sorry, um, and um, you know, uh, on the point about about uh, about uh, the funding uh, of news of journalism in this way that I proposed, I think you know, in a way, you th one way to think about it is in terms of it's like everyone gets a kind of to give a subscription to some organisation, um, but that subscription is free for them, so there are no class barriers to them taking out that subscription. And there are also no consumption barriers. There are no walls around the other ones that they didn't give the money to. They get to consume all of them, right? When you start to look at it that way, it's obvious how it's strictly superior to the system that we have at the moment. Um, and, you know, in a sense, the flourishing of that kind of journalism is the security state's worst nightmare. Indeed, it's the worst nightmare of any organization that depends for the way it currently functions on being able to organize secrecy. There are a lot of things which are, go unreported simply because there's no one around to report on them, not because they're actually that difficult to uncover. And that includes many of the activities of the security state. Um, and so in a very real sense, if we regenerate journalism, then we get a better picture of what's being done in our name by these, by these apparatuses. I just wanted to say in passing that I think one of the most important pieces of journalism that's been done for a very long time has been done very recently in The Guardian by Amelia Gentleman. And I don't think we should... We, are, we do tend all the time to say how terrible journalism is, but I do think that the campaign, the Windrush campaign, has been the most brilliant example of how very straightforward reporting can change things and we need to put, keep a lot of pressure on that, as The Guardian has been doing, to make sure that change continues in that direction. I mean, I think that the issues that have been raised by people, the person from um, the New Internationalist, is, are absolutely critical to what has gone wrong in journalism since the rise of, of, of the internet. And if you can no longer sell a commodity, and the amount of advertising you can get has been completely undermined by the way in which the, the major um, platforms sell advertising. 
we see exactly what's happening now. And it's going to get worse because a lot of the newer left-wing news organisations, the ones that were successful, like the Canary, for example, I don't know if there's anybody here from the Canary, um, were very dependent on advertising and very dependent on, on their understanding of search engine optimization and social media optimization to get the kind of audiences that they were able to get in the, in, in, over the last you know, three or four years. And Facebook has changed its algorithms completely so that we are seeing over the last few months not only the older, new, older journalism organisations disappearing, but newer organisations which are, were relatively commercial, but things like The Pool, which I don't know if any of the women here have, have been reading, but that's in trouble. The debrief is in trouble. There's a whole lot of the smaller organisations that have tried to make space for themselves within the digital era by making use of social media. And they are desperately struggling. So I, I think the voucher system is a, is, a, is a mechanism for redistribution. There are other mechanisms for redistribution, but what we need is to get our hands on the loot. And that means that I think that the first thing that needs to be done, and I do think it is on the verge of happening, is some kind of way of um, getting money back from the platforms in the form of some kind of ta tax system. But then we're going, there's going the, the, the really big issue that's going to come next is how and through what mechanisms and by what people is that money going to be redistributed? The voucher system is one way. There are other ways, and it really needs a lot of thought. Uh, yeah, I agree with uh, all of this. I, th I agree that I think all of these problems that have been raised are connected, and the cause of them all is the dynamics of capitalism. And the solution is public media. So the surveillance, the reason why all of this state surveillance can happen is because all of this data has been harvested and it's been harvested for advertising to make profit. Um, the state didn't have to do it themselves. This, this data was harvested by the, the corporations for them, or kind of. So yes, um, publicly funded mon uh, media that doesn't rely on uh, capturing data. We can also think about, there are like groups that are trying to think about how publics can gain control of their own data and pool data. We also need to think about like, what kinds of data do we actually want? Because in some ways, big data can be useful, but we need, we need to be able to make those decisions ourselves. And there are projects going on where people are trying to think about that. There's one called Decode, which is a European project you can Google. Um, <laughs> or DuckDuckGo. <laughs> Uh, investigative journalism, yeah, pub public fund to support that. Um, uh, new internationalist, uh, 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 shout out to new internationalist, I like your magazine, I'm one of your co-owners. So yeah, voucher system or, or pu public sub subsidies, yeah. And yeah, I mean, the tax, yeah, we need, to, we need progressive taxes. Um, but we can also start thinking about maybe nationalising infrastructure. Yes, that's it. So unfortunately, we have to wrap up, uh, but I just want to briefly touch on the question about resources. So I guess the pamphlet is probably a good sort of resource for anyone who wants to learn more. 
don't feel you just have to buy one. <laughs> there are bulk discounts available. Uh, we're reasonable people, so buy armfuls and spread the word. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you all for coming. I'm sorry there wasn't more time for questions, but you can come talk to the panelists after. Thank you.